all is important to us. Hello and welcome to tonight's show. You've arrived at your destination. Connecting. Hi guys, welcome to Glitches in the Code here on Iconic.com. I'm here with Neil Helg. Haig, artist Neil Haig. You'll probably see some of his work on David Icke's books, but there's a wealth of knowledge that Neil has. So I thought I would jump on here and talk about the occult backgrounds of art. But I also didn't realise that how much Neil knows about Gnosticism, Cathar, Gnosticism and Cathars all mixed together and how it all melds all into one. So I didn't realise how the depth of knowledge that you had and over 30 years of looking into this. Um, so guys, um, I'm going to be basically sitting under the learning tree for this one because this is all new to me. So Neil, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Let's start off. So when was the moment you had your kind of glitch in the code moment and you thought the world was nothing like you? you thought it was previously uh my goodness uh richard that was 19 that was i, I reckon it was it, there's two things with me I, I was always as i was young when i was young i was always aware that the world was was odd uh, that, that's the first thing so i knew there wasn't something quite sitting with me I, I felt different all my childhood like a bit weird you know like i was out of sorts um, and and I had a background and upbringing that was really kind of spiritual in many ways, but not religious, to keep it simple. And then as I got into my, I kind of forget it through your teenage years, and then I got into my 20s. And I I used to work in London uh, as, a, as a book designer, which I still do, you know, when I can. And I, I kind of one day was late for work. And it's interesting because I was late for work and it just, it, the, the scenario got crazier and crazier to a point where I was I remember walking down Neil Street in Covent Garden and there used to be a beautiful bookshop there called East Street or something kind of books with a, a really bright red front to the shop and there was a um, <clears throat> there was a book that jumped out at me it just literally jumped out of the window and it was an American Indian book on mythology and I went in and bought it and I sat on a bench nearby and I just forgot about work and I just started reading this book. I was late anyway, and I was very late by then, of course. And, and, it, and at that point, things started to fit together. I mean, not because of that book, but I was kind of, I started to, I started to go with, with, with certain feelings that I had then from that point on. And then there was a, a later period when I was, um, well, I got involved with, with David's work where there were so many synchronicities just before that and during that early period that I just could never, ever, ever go back to the place I was at before. You know, it was impossible. And I, I was seeing too many things, understanding too many new things. And I was always, I was always aware that there was something quite dark about the world, even though I, I, was, I wasn't myself dark, but I, I was aware of this darkness that was around us. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that connected me with David all those years ago was a painting, of course. So, you know, um, and that's how it started originally. I, I, was, I was wanting to be an illustrator, leaving graphics behind, you know, started to channel things, weird shit. Things kept coming through, paintings, illustrations. And then um, I discovered people like William Blake, you know, the... Um, 
who I felt I had a real strong connection to. And, and then I realised after a, a couple of years of living in London in the 90s that the actual studio that I was working through on Beak Street was actually just a, a block down from where Blake was born. And when we moved studios to Poland Street, round the corner, we moved to the same floor, the same area where, his, um, where Robert, where his brother lived. So we, I was kind of following Blake around in my early 20s, which was, you know, which was now looking back, it was, it was bizarre, really. And I got into a load of stuff, you know, and not least Blake's art and illustrations and other artists as well. I mean, we can talk about all that if you like. But, you know, it, it, it just absolutely for me, it was like one thing after another. And my whole life, I felt like a free spirit constantly disconnected from the so-called um, illusion or the, what, what we consider real life to, to my own detriment in many ways. You know, uh, I, and I, I did, a, um, I did a, a ridiculous thing a couple of years ago. I, I got involved in, I, I met a friend of mine said, put my name forward for, a, for something in mainstream press to do with angels. And I put this, I went down to the Daily Mail and I, I had my photograph as an angel don't even I mean this is it was all I was just going with the flow as I always do and um, and as journalists do they interviewed these four guys me I was one of them and it was in the Daily Mail and, and, and now I look back I laugh because I think we all look like Bee Gees you know we all look like like the, the cover of the um, what's it called um, I forget the name of the album now but you know the one all about heaven anyway the Bee Gees album so, um, and, but the journalist said, said oh, Neil believes his, his spiritual work is so intense that he can't hold a relationship down, which I thought was, was I never said that. That was terrible, you know. So I, I, I used to, I was a bit of this kind of fool-like character all my life as well, Richard. So I was kind of stumbling across things, meeting American Indians, meeting other people, you know, like David. And, and, and it was kind of a kaleidoscope, a mishmash of things. And I just to absorb information and then translate it through my art very easily or I would channel stuff directly outside of the matrix as such and it would come through and um, the amount of people that have contacted me over the years and said god I, I how did you you know how did you put that together or that's exactly how I saw it or so you're kind of channeling this collective consciousness so I was almost destined to do that in many ways do you know what I mean it was kind yeah. of I, I couldn't help myself because I couldn't do anything else. I mean, I tried teaching art and I still do, but, and I love that, but it's not, for, for me, it was always, it was always this unique connection to spirit, you know, and the imagination. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of like, I, I, I really was interested in that and always was and always, always will be. So, um, yeah, I mean, where can you go from there? The imagination, you know, was, was my main focus. It was my, really what I was interested in. And that's why I stumbled across Blake um, and, and Blake's work, you know, because he, he, was, he was interested in, in the imagination and only the imagination. I see that William Blake said, the quote I've got is, imagination is the nearest thing you'll get to God. That's right, yeah. That's, so that kind of, that thought process is, is where you kind of still coming from all these years later. Yeah, it was for me. It was never really. I, I I wouldn't have used the same language back then when I was connecting with things, but now I see it exactly like that. It's almost like the artist was put on earth to to deepen the mystery 
I think that's something Francis Bacon said as well. You know, it's something to do with, um, you, you know, real art for me. And I love all kinds of art, don't get me wrong. There's some amazing, amazing, amazing artists. Um, I could think, I can even contemporary artists like Alex Gray's work, you know, all that stuff's beautiful. But it was, for me, it was, it was art, artists making the invisible visible, which was something that was really, really important. And that's something I've, I've always been interested in. You know, like, jo, you know, Joseph Campbell said, the function of the artist is to, is, is to create this mythology, this cultural mythology. And it was that kind of thing, like a personal mythology, which Blake talked about all the time. He talked about not resting until he'd awakened the, um, you know, the imagination or until he'd awakened humanity. It was creating a... You know, I, I will die creating a personal mythology. It was so important because that's the, the diatribe, you know, that's the dialogue we have with everything beyond this reality or beyond this illusion, the infinite. So it's our personal connection to that, um, to that world beyond this world, which comes through our creativity. It comes through other things as well, but it's primarily creativity, whether it's music, poetry, filmmaking, you know, it's that creative connection. And um, Blake said, do what you will. This world's fiction, um, this world is fiction and is made up of contradiction. And that's why I constantly saw all through my, um, you know, youth as such, I kept seeing the contradictions in what we were being told on the media or what we were, what we were being told in educational settings. And then knowing, having this knowing that, no, that's not right. There's something not sitting right with it. A common sense. Yeah, a, t a total common sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like you were, like you were kind of, um, you, you like it's not so much common sense. It was more like your creativity was your intelligence. It was it was the real area that you understood through your perception of um, you know of everything that you needed to know. You know, I, it, I I was never really absorbing other people's thoughts and opinions. I did sometimes. I took them on, but. I was more interested in getting to the root of what I knew. So this self-gnosis, this self-knowledge, which is why I've always been interested in the Gnostics and all this stuff to do with that, especially, you know, the Cathars, um, because it was about self-gnosis for me more than anything. You know, the Oracle, that Delphi, know thyself. Um, that was something that, for me, art, whether it was, it didn't matter what kind of art you were producing, it was about knowing yourself. And there was one artist who I really admired. He's, he's, he's been passed a long time. Uh, a fine artist, academic artist called Cecil Collins, who was head of fine art in St. Martin's, uh, a beautiful figure. And he talked about two different types of artists in the world. And I could, I, when he was talking about, I read all of his essays, and when he was talking about these two types of artists, I, I could see exactly how that fitted into the archetypes of the way we are with each other. But from a creative point of view, he was talking about the cathartic artist, you know, the kind of um, the wounder artist, artists that like to pierce through, you know, the, the veil, pierce through the bubble and, and show people exactly what it is they need to see. They need to have that personal wounding in a kind of psychological way. So, you know, it's almost like my art, my colours and my imagery is a, 
some people have described it like a smack in the face. Some people have said, oh, it's, it, it's not that. It's quite gentle. There's a spiritual side mm-hmm. to it. But the thing that I, I understood was that you've got the, the artist as a wounder, which pierces the veil, and then you've got the artist as a healer, a consoler. And you can see that kind of dualistic art within every art form you look at, whether it's the, you've got the kind of art that is more classical, which is quite safe in many ways, but intelligent. And then you've got this very, very refined, finicky kind of Gothic, you know, cathartic art, which is full of um, detail, twists and turns, and kind of sends you on a, on a journey, you know, into your, into your own sense of emotion. So I, I'd seen all of that through art. I, st- I mean, I studied art. I didn't study fine art, but I'd studied art history enough to realise that um, these two types of art are very prevalent in the world around us all the time, whether it's architecture, you know, whether it's skyscrapers, or whether, like I say, it's Gothic cathedrals, or whether it's more kind of, um, more about painting, even music, you know, different types of music that have appeared over the years, switching music from 432 to, you know, mm-hmm. to other, all that stuff relates to that. Um, do you think, it's interesting. Um, sorry, go you, on, yeah. Sorry, do you, do you think, just before I forget the question, do you forget, uh, um, think that, Things like the biblical text, the canon, and the gospels, um, sorry, the, the Gnostic gospels, they're forms of art that have been misinterpreted as historical writings. They're, they're creative uh, art. Yeah, I mean, from a, from a biblical point, yeah, biblical scripture, I mean, the scriptures are, in many ways, are scripts. That's what they are. It's like having a script for a movie. When I think of the books in, in the, you know, the Bible's made up of so, I think the Bible's made up of, if I remember, is it 66 books? I can't remember, but there's, it's made there's up a of a lot of books. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder whether some of it is channeled, like the Re- book of Revelation, John the Revelator, John of Pathos. The John figure fascinates me greatly, you know, whether it's the Baptist or whether it's John the Revelator or, you know the, the the so-called figure that wrote Revelation. I I I'm 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 still kind of not sure about that. I, I I often think that whoever wrote the scriptures, they were they were very very um, they were obviously priests with a a lot of knowledge relating to the type of things that you would see in um, you know how alchemy, um, all the pagan symbolism, all the understandings of what had gone before in terms of ancient civilization, the priesthoods of Egypt, the priesthoods of Babylon, the Levites, which are really important as, mm-hmm. as, as tribes of priests out of Babylon, all of those, they, they were obviously um, real and existed. It, well, as much as we can understand the science of holograms and illusions, but they were real. And it's, fascin- it's fascinating because um, when you look at the hieroglyphs as art, say, in, in Egypt, I was saying this to somebody the other day. I don't see a language that we could even ever comprehend. I mean, I love how the academics try and take this apart and say they formed a common kind of Rosetta stone structure for the understanding hieroglyphs. That may well be, and I wouldn't dispute it, but what I'm looking at is a pure alien language, one that is alien to our our current programming. There's something very different either about those people or about their priesthoods that put those together. And it's the same with some of the scriptures. It's so symbolic, whether you're looking at, 
whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Old Testament seems to be more about metaphor um, and, um, and myth and some history, of course, as well. Whereas some books in the New Testament, you could apply to the world around us today. Yeah, you know, even the teachings of Christ, you could you could relate that to what's going on in the world. In fact, I read a really interesting book, Richard, about, God, it must be 10 years ago, called The Thirteenth Stone by a, a now deceased author called um, Reg Lacoste Lewis, who was an Australian guy. And a very thick book written in 1984. And, you know, I've read loads of books, but this book was really, really interesting from its scholarly viewpoint. He took apart the Bible. It was all about um the, the the jesus myths very interesting because he, he he said that the new testament was prophecy in in main and none of it actually happened i mean you could it i mean this all down to personal perception i suppose but rome could be the rome of yesterday is the imperial industrial complex of today you know with america and the west it's the same thing so um, all the symbolism like like the heraldry is similar it's been carried on through generation to generation it hasn't really changed much at all. It doesn't matter what it is. You've still got the same symbolism. It's still there. It's part of the old, old ancient order as such. Um, but thinking about music, I just when you were talking about, I was talking about music a minute ago. I used to run some workshops years, years and years ago, and I did these workshops. And in terms of music, energetically giving people a um, a telepathic link through creativity, through art. I was amazed at one workshop, two guys that didn't know each other at all, never met. I, I was playing certain bits of music and um, they, were, they were both producing the same images. I mean, literally sitting at other sides of the hall, not even looking at each other. So there's something to do with the collective and the connection between, you know, whether it's myths or, or scriptures or music, it's all part of the same thing. You know, it's all part of the, the same understanding of, um, whether it's left brain, right brain activity, or, or whether it's just something that's of a higher consciousness, for some reason it comes through when we, when we lose all the control structures, it starts to filter in. So I don't know, going back to what you said about the Bible, I think some of it is channeled. It was completely channeled. And um, I wonder whether or not some of, a lot of it is also just control mechanisms. It's just about controlling people psychologically, like we've had with COVID for two years. It's all about psychology. Because I know you, you're very kind of like in, into the Gnostic stuff, and I find that fascinating. And and the idea of the Matrix films is obviously quite connected to what we know of the Gnostics. Obviously, we're only being told the Victor always writes the story, so we only know so much. Yeah. Um, some of the cathars. But um, do you think like the Gnostic kind of text was kind of a reaction to the Orthodox Christianity in a sense of that is horrific I don't want to that this is kind of a reaction to that and what is it about the Gnostics that you find so like fulfilling and fascinating well um the thing about the Gnostics it's not so much that you, you've got to remember where the, the Gnostics originally the actual understanding of, of Gnosticism came from ancient came from the ancient Greek period probably then filtered into what we understand as Manichaeism, mm -hmm. which was just at, around 150 years after the so-called um, death and resurrection of, of Jesus, is to put an historical connection to it. Sure. And the prophet Mani, who was followed like a Jesus figure, 
in Iraq and around those areas, he was kind of, um, this figure was supposedly responsible for the writing of some of these, these books like the Book of Giants and the Psalms. Even, they talk about some of the books coming from an earlier period and they may well have done, but the Gnostic kind of consciousness train of thought and the way in which the world was seen by the Gnostics, I think was, was always there. It's not something that, that arrived after Christianity or, or it was there before Christianity. And I think it, it married comfortably with what they what was ascribed to the teachings of, of Christ, because in the later Cathars, the 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 Bogomils, the Cathars and all of these sects and groups that flowered several centuries after the early fathers, Christian fathers, through Armenia, through Bulgaria, Bul capital of Bulgaria, Sophia, which is the you know the the Greek the um, the Greek understanding of wisdom, which is which is in the Gnostic teachings. These were almost kind of like, in many ways, that they, they were they carried the spirit of of, of Gnosticism of of the Gnostics, but they were they were also very much influenced by the early Christian Christian teachings, which was very Gnostic in in its in its understanding. No, I mean, the, the so-called, you know, preaching of Jesus and all the, all the scriptures talking about know thyself and the kingdom of heaven is within and all, the, all that stuff is, is from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's from the Apocryphon of the Archons, it's from the Gnostic understanding of reality. And, you know, I'm not, like I say, I'm not an expert on, on Gnosticism, but I've, I've understood enough of it to, um, to tell you that Wherever, wherever the Gnostics or that, that, that consciousness came to the surface throughout history, no matter where, predominantly in, in the Occitane in France is where it was really noticeable because of the nature of that place, it was, it was always cut down. It was always shut, shut down, cut mm -hmm. down uh, historically. Um, do you know what I'm saying? It, it yeah, well, we saw with the Cathars, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't allowed to flourish at all. And the reason for that, I think, is because if it had been allowed to flourish, um, then you would have had a very different strain of Christianity to the one that was chopping it down, which was Roman Catholicism. Uh, there's, so, there's so much in Roman Catholicism, which was stolen, really, especially in that period. We know it was stolen from, stolen from pagan belief, because of the Roman pagan connection, especially, but a lot of it was stolen um, from that period as the Inquisition kicked in, from that period under Innocent III in, you know, in, in southern France, in, in in northern Italy, the um, the Eucharist, you know, the the the, um, the the breaking of the wafer and the and the wine in the church. There are several stories of 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 that being taken from the Cathar Consolidatum ceremony, which, which happened many years before that was even in, invented. It was almost as though there was a, a threat to the, um, to the hierarchy and the control structure back then. And, you know, it's a bit like when some mogul brings, brings some gadget out and another businessman tries to bring something else out. It's a bit, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of an analogy. Oh, it's a bit like when 
when the Catholics um, brought out, when the Jesuits were created to, um, to counteract Rosicrucian uh, intelligence. So it's a little bit like that. Um, the, the Cathars were doing their own thing. They were, the, the Cathar Credente, the believers, took a shine to the, um, the Cathar priests, the Parthay, the Bon Hon Bon women, who were women predominantly in the, in the early part, according to the, according to the Inquisitor's notes, because all you've got on that mainly are the Inquisitor's notes, like you said, it's the ones that have, that rewrote history maybe, but there's enough evidence in other areas. Arthur Garden's work and the reincarnation books are really interesting. There's some interesting stories there where a woman in Bristol who, um, who said she was a Cathar in the, 20th, in the 20th century actually remembered all this great detail about what happened in Toulouse in this particular area. And she'd never seen any of these Inquisitor's documents, but she, was, she could recite them verbatim. So it's almost as though some people were reaffirming it through a reincarnation connection, if, you, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but I've been to the, I mean, I spent years on and off in the Cathar country from a Gnostic viewpoint. And it's not just the teachings and the, and the understanding and the philosophy. There's something about the land, wherever the Gnostics, say, popped up, there's something about the land there as well. Um, and you can't rule out also the, the mystical Kabbalistic stuff that was going on at the same time. Because again, that's another subject which relates to it. You had the, you had the, the, the kind of ancient Sephardic Judaic mystical teachings surfacing around the same time as the Cathars and just after. A lot of it was put again, was cut down by Roman Catholicism. It was totally um, removed. I mean, the, the, the Crusades and the genocide on, on the Cathars was horrendous. You know, it's another, it's a big subject in itself, that, Richard. It's huge. Um, you know, I've not, I've, I've kind of, I looked at it in great detail over the years. I was writing about it in my own ways, but um, what I was looking for, oh yeah, this was it. I wanted to, I'm just looking at something here. The mig the mig I call it the migration, the, um, the migration of the, of the Gnostics. It's fascinating because I'm just looking at a diagram and it seems to me that when Manichaeism arrived around AD 200, it, it seemed to plant, there was kind of seeds planted in that area. Like I say, in that kind of, um, uh, Christ, what became the, the birth of Christianity and it just migrated through and through and up through um, into uh, Armenia and up through into um, you know the Balkans into Europe and it, and it just seemed to be the most predominant belief system not not Roman Catholicism not even pagan stuff that because that was connected to the old holy empire uh, it was more about this this understanding that I mean, they, they firm, the Cathars firmly believed in a man called Jesus. They, they literally did believe that he, he was a man. He existed. I mean, whether people want to believe, that's up to them. That's none of my business. But the, the Cathars generally believed it, and they, they, they saw themselves as, um, as a miseries, the priests did. They saw themselves as a, a, a miseries of the Christ light. In other words, the disciples that were sent forth to deliver Christianity before before Rome got its grubby hands on the teachings, 
the Cathars said we were the pure ones that kept the original teachings from the point when it was delivered. And we are now emissaries continuing this, this, um, this understanding of divine light, divine eternal consciousness in the, in the vein and the message of, 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 this, of our teacher, the, the Christ. So it, it was, for me, it was kind of like, that made sense. You know what I'm saying? It, re it really did make sense. Um, and there's so much more to it. Oh, I mean, it's so deep. I mean, I wrote a book called Orion's Door and I touched on Gnosticism and Catharism in the book only because I started stumbling across things in relation to Adam Cadman, the high heavenly Adam, you know, the, um, the, the understanding of the Kabbalah and the understanding of um, the divine descending. So you've got all these religious symbolism centered around Orion and Taurus, you know, Hathar and Taurus are the same thing in Egypt. Um, and then the cat, what I started looking at was the Cathars again, and there's some of their kind of early watermarks and symbols, and they've got all the symbols that relate to Taurus. The, um, they never really went for the crucifix because that was seen as an instrument of torture. Didn't make any sense. Why would you worship an instrument of torture? And you remember Bill Hicks, the comedian, yeah, back yeah. in the 90s? I mean, he said a similar thing, you know, what, what, you know why would you um, wear a crucifix? You know, that Jesus, well, I'm not going back until they stop wearing the fucking crucifix. You know, it's like, well, it's like going up to Jackie Onassis with a rifle pendant. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. say we're just thinking about uh, John, you know, it, it, it's kind of the Cathars were like that in many ways. Bill Hicks was a modern Cathar, if you were to look at it that way. They were having none of it. They didn't want anything to do with it because they saw in the church at that time something that was plainly evil and and from that fallen state from the from what they called the um rex monday the the fall, the fall of mankind or the demiurge in the gnostic teachings mm -hmm. and they believed everything from that from that that was created within that that um, frame within that lower aeonic frame within creation were, was was not of the of the original source it was but it wasn't if you know what i mean they they talked about the pleroma and the coma of sophia and the pleroma separating from from um from its original source and this boundary between these two this upper and lower worlds as such were were were, were were you know transcribed into the in in the dead sea scrolls in the apocryphal of the archons he talked about the material world being shadow and darkness and that the the empire of the creator the demiurge was in shadow and darkness therefore everything in the material world to the to the cathar gnostics was was not of the not of the creator the true creator it's interesting because the word pleroma relates to the word plentitude in many ways so when the american indians were talking about their understanding of the same ionic ethereal field of plenty and they were talking about being able to manifest things from this invisible realm this field of plenty in many ways they were almost talking in a gnostic manner you see what i mean yeah. and it's not it's not they weren't, of course, because they were in a different continent and would never have even encountered that that philosophy. But it was a similar kind of thing. 
which is interesting because when you look at the Hopi Indians, everything about the Hopi that I've discovered, and I've been to the reservations, I've stayed at Second Mesa and First Mesa, everything about them is very almost Judaic. It's unbelievable, really. All their teachings were given to them on tablets, like Moses give, gave to the Israelites. They, they kind of, they, they, are, they are Orion worshipping um, kind of tribal, original uh, indigenous people. And, you know, I mean, honestly, the symbolism and the stuff I could go, I could be here all night going on and on about it. But, you know, the, 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 the dualism within Gnosticism is important. It is within the Cathar teachings. And just to go back to the Hopi, the Hopi had a, um, a deity called Masawa or Maswa, who was actually basically an embodiment of the dark aspect of the Orion, Adam, the fallen version of Adam from a biblical point of view. like like Prometheus or Lucifer, which is embedded into the story of the Gnostics in many ways. The, the fall of Sophia is like the fall of Lucifer, you know, the fallen angel. Is, there's some connections to that. But they, they received their teachings on these tablets. And they also, if you look at some of the petroglyphs that I've seen, they, they're always representing this kind of dark entity who could be the devil, could be, you know, whatever you want to perceive it to be. But those were represented with a with another de deity or another entity called Coco Pelli. Have you heard of Coco Pelli, the the American Indian kind of bird like flute player? I know and, the image. I don't. I didn't know. You know the, the image. Yeah. Well, more often than not, he's rising out of the head of Maswa. He's kind of rising away from this darkness, and he he, according to the Hopi, represented this kind of solar life force. This you know this kind of. Um, this living light, this plasma, you know, this energy that relates to the sun. And when I looked at the Kabbalah and I looked at the positioning of the different, um, the different, you know, spokes or wheels within the tree of life, it's interesting how the sun, even in the, the, um, the Hermetic Kabbalah, which is spelled with a Q, is, is placed below, it's called Tiripeth, and it's placed below Saturn, which is interesting. Right. It's not above Saturn, it's below Saturn. So there's something that they understood, the priests, even back then, that this dark force, Maswa, was a connection to everything that was fallen, the Saturnian, and had a, had a point of origin, quite possibly connecting to the corona, the crown, which is connected to the Orion constellation. And I say I go in detail in the book about this because it's, you know, the, the word corona and kether and crown, which we've seen for the past two years with sure. coronavirus, yeah. all this symbolism is all part of this mystical kind of secret society underground stream. And um, I remember when, when Orion's door came out, um, you know, I, I, had, I had some interesting correspondence, but there, there was, you know, I think I attracted the attention of some legal firms because, especially the Masonic structures, because, which I did actually, but the Masonic structure, I think, and I'm not a Freemason, by the way, I've been accused of it many times, but I'm not. We all have. Um, <laughs> we all have, yeah. You know, you start, you start messing around with your eye or doing stuff like this, you know, and next thing you know, you're a Freemason. Yeah, I, know. I wish it was that easy. I mean, a lot of people are, by the way, and they're good people at the lowest levels. I'm not knocking that in that sense. Um, they, they're just innocent people like everybody else. But the, I reckon some of the higher level initiations evolve, involve uh, the, the, in terms of the dark aspects of Orion as well as Saturn. And I think that that's why 
um, when I when I went into all the stuff and I started looking at it, um, I, I started to see so many connections to the Orion symbolism within even with within Gnosticism. You know, going like I said, the connection to Taurus, according to Greek myth, and we're back to the Greeks again. Orion was born of the bull, born of the Taurian mother. That could have been an, the equivalent of, in the Gnostic teachings, the Demiurge being born from Sophia, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you look closely, according to the Gnostics, Sophia rejected the Demiurge, like a rejected aborted fetus. So there's something dark about, there's something dark about that process by the way, I'm not Yelder, Yelder Bayoth is the same character, is it not? Yelda Bayoth the same character, the same. Yelda Bayoth is the same. Yes. Is yeah, it something to do with Rosemary's baby connection there? The, the, the probably is from a satanic point of view. Yeah. Um, the, that's more to do with the, the, the kind of um, controlled breeding programs within those satanic circles. But, but it's, it's in terms of, metaphysics and in terms of understanding the energies behind things i i created a painting which was um that kind of summed it up i tried to anyway with sophia was said to be dreaming an extension of the upper aeons and the aeons are pure they describe it as watery light let's call it spirit you know pure spirit mm. and uh, uh, as a as a kind of goddess of that watery light went into a dream world process and started to create herself for herself through this, through this process of, of knowing self-gnosis self that she was a creator goddess in herself. And in that process, in that dreaming process, is where the Aborigines get the dream time from, um, in that dreaming process, her dream turned into a nightmare, to keep, keep it simple. Okay. And that nightmare sent her into this kind of coma, this state, and in this process, this deity was born, this, this Yaldaboeth, this demiurge deity was birthed in, through this process. And um, I don't know, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I've, I've looked at the Orion Nebula a lot and I've looked at it closely and there's been so many other things connected to it. I wonder whether or not that's the kind of the place, the birthing place of if you were look for a physical location as such within the holographic reality, that would be a birthing place for stars and suns and not least, not least fallen stars like Saturn and like our sun, which our sun, Richard, is going, you know, is going around other stars. I mean, I love this notion that our sun is kind of there and we're, it's a star and it's got planets going around it, two of which could be stars themselves, dwarf stars like Jupiter and Saturn themselves because they're so big and got 60 odd moons, one of them, you know, that, right. and some of them are nearly the size of the earth. That seems like a mini solar system within a solar system. Sure. So you've got that going on. And then you've got the sun, which is in the, it's, it's literally in the Pegasus Orion arm of the Milky Way. And if you look at the Orion constellation, there's a, there's a, um, what they call the, uh, the loop, the Bernard loop, which is absolutely huge. It looks like a, um, a nebula kind of that has, that has extended itself, you know, over a great distance, stretches as far as Betelgeuse in the top left-hand corner, as you view Orion, to the bottom right-hand, almost to Regal, and cuts through Sayaf. Um, I mean, so many legends, so many ancient teachings and legends focus on these stars and on Taurus as well, the Pleiades and 
you know, and Aldebaran and Sirius to the left. So this area of the kind of star map fascinated me from a Gnostic point of view, but also from, you know, a metaphysical point of view. That's why I wrote Orion's Door. So what's Orion's Door about? Just to, could you sum up what the kind of the, the principal kind of narrative is of Orion's Door for us? Uh, it, it's a, it's basically a, a codex. It's a codex of all things Orion. If anybody wants to, anybody feels a pull to Orion or Taurus, play these, especially Orion, and they want to know more about it, I've covered everything, literally everything. I mean, it's about 700 pages long with a massive index. So I've, I've gone into the myths, the alchemy, the ecclesiastical, the hermetic, uh, the Kabbalah, which probably why it attracted a bit of interest from certain areas. You know, in many ways, if you think about the secret societies and think about how it's a secret, that's why they're secret societies. And you think about the Zodiac and the Zodiac Wheel and the Babylonian priesthoods and the movement of the, and the editing of the Zodiac and the exclusion of a 13th sign and all these things we've heard about over the years. Well, Orion is not recognized, as, of course, as, a, as an astrological sign, but it sits comfortably between Taurus in Gemini around that May area of the Zodiac um, for that particular period. And it's a hidden but powerful blueprint that maps the ecliptic and maps the whole of the pagan wheel through the sun and the moon, of course, which are also markers, the solstice, the equinox, the Holly King and the Oak King, you know, the, the birth of John the Baptist around the, the summer solstice and the birth of Jesus around the winter solstice are both major Masonic um, symbols that relate to the feasts of St. John and all these other things. And it's all relates to mapping the Zodiac, but with this kind of hidden eye that is looking at this Zodiac and, and mapping it in, in a way that is more energetic and hidden as a blueprint rather than a physical thing. And I think Orion plays its role in that. It's kind of the epitome of the secret hidden codex or symbolism. And um, I mean, there's other things as well besides that, but that, that's, the, that's the main thing that I saw when I started researching it. You've got the Orion correlation, which I don't go into in, in the book because it's been, it's been done and looked at by, by experts like Laval and Hancock anyway. But it's quite obvious that the pyramids I was saying this to somebody the other night. Anybody who thinks the pyramids were built without technology, as far as I'm concerned, you're completely wasting your time trying to understand it. So where did the technology come from? You know, how, why are they aligned with these correlations like, like um, Orion and, and Leo, the lion? Um, you know, there's so many things. I'm not going to go on about it now, but there's so many things that lead to us having to understand that maybe just maybe our consciousness is so entwined with stellar consciousness you know when the american indians talk about our ancestors coming back from the other side from beyond the veil into this period and this time that we're in now as starlight as genetic as a genetic light to to um, awaken it's no different to people talking about higher consciousness and consciousness awakening. It's the same thing. So the stars, especially um, the ones we feel drawn to, I feel from a creative point of view, are say, saying a lot about our connection to the stars personally, individually. And I've always felt an, 
a kind of a, a strong connection to to that area I've described, the Orion Taurian area. Uh, when we started out 30 years ago, a lot of people were talking about the Pleiades. There was the Pleiadian Agenda, the book by Barbara Ann Clow, all these kind of channeled books. But there was nothing on Orion. Orion was always kind of the, the big area that nobody wanted to talk about. And um, I started researching it academically. That's why it's footnoted in great detail. I went into it from an academic point of view, but then I started remembering all these ethereal kind of metaphysical things and channeling stuff that made me realize there was more to it than that. So yeah, it's, it's, um, they're in a book. I mean, I sound like I'm, I'm selling the book, but there ain't, there ain't, there's lots of books on Orion, but there ain't a book like this on Orion. Yeah, no, it's I can incredible. recommend some really good books on Orion. I can <laughs> recommend two fantastic books on Orion. And I quote from them in, in my book. One is a guy called Gary A. David, an American writer, Whose, whose expertise on the American Indians is second to none. I mean, his research is brilliant. And then there's another, um, another researcher who's gone very quiet in recent years. I hope he's all right, all right. I haven't heard anything about him or from him. A guy called Danny Wilton, who basically was the main protagonist in this area, in a specialist area, through his book called Orion in the Vatican, where he right. maps the original paintings by the artists like Michelangelo and these other Renaissance painters, mainly Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, with the Orion Nebula. And he's not messing around. I mean, he could be complete. I mean, you know, he, he, might, he might well not have any credence. He might just be kind of, you could look at it and say, well, it's a bit of a coincidence. But there's too many things in his book that are beyond coincidence, as he explained. So, you know, did Michelangelo have a telescope? Did they have them in the Renaissance period? I think they might have done. The brotherhoods that I've looked at through art were all um, working with this underground stream, which was always decades, probably five decades ahead of the public surface level of reality. Da Vinci was trying to make a robot when he was in under the patronage of Charles I in, um, um, in France, sorry, Francis I in France at the Amboise Chateau. Um, he, you know, he was into all sorts of technological stuff, but Michelangelo was either channeling this stuff, because when you look at the, the creation of Adam on the Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam, Adam Cadman, Adam Patar in Egypt, Orion, Osiris, it's all the same stuff, the same symbolism. You know that image of the two with the two fingers, sure. you know, the God and yeah, the mm -hmm. creation of Adam? Well, you, you, your listeners will probably know this, but Adam, not Adam, God as such in that painting is, is, actually, is actually circled by a brain. It's the shape of a brain. And actually all the cherubim in the brain seem to match the diagrams of a brain, which is not an amazing thing because they would have been dissecting brains and looking at stuff in that period. But it gets worse than that. With Danny Wilton's work, when you look at it closely, he shows how Michelangelo's painting of the cherubim almost matched the formations perfectly within the nebula of Orion. It's almost as though they either were looking at the Orion nebula back then or they purely just intuited it. So it's almost were, like he's kind of like drawn a dot to dot. Dot to dot, like a dot connector. Yeah. yeah. With, and he made a picture out of it. He's mapped it with technology. He, he was a research, I think his background was in research analysis. So he's, 
he's not messing around. He's mapped the stuff very in a very detailed way. I recommend anybody go and buy the go and buy it. It's an ebook. It's not expensive. It's called Orion in the Vatican. Um, I, I I bought it and I was like, oh wow. I listened to a couple of videos where I thought this is interesting. Um, this this kind of coincides with what I was doing. And I've not really mentioned Danny Wilton in the book at all very much. I've quoted from him a couple of times, but I've not shown any of his work for copyright reasons. But but um, but it, it's it's a branch of the subject which is really specialist. But it reinforces the ecclesiastical secret society understanding of the stars, which was way ahead of the mainstream at any point, at any time, just like NASA today. I mean, the NASA um, logos for the Orion, sorry, for, sorry, for the um, Apollo project, mm -hmm. the Apollo mission. I mean, the original badge had Orion in it. Why would it have Orion in it? It had the sun and the moon, Apollo and Artemis, and Orion in the background. And the reason for that is because when you look at the Greek myths, Orion was the lover of the moon at one point. I mean, this is kind of the time of the age, what I call in the book, the age of the age of Orion, the age of giants, because Orion was also a giant in, in Greek classical myth. He was the ultimate warrior, hunter giant on earth, could kill anything. But he, he's, he's, his lover was Artemis. And the downfall of Orion was, was a, a collusion between Artemis and Apollo. So that became the Apollo mission. You see why they put the Orion symbol on the... So, you know, they know all about this stuff. They, I mean, it's not, it's not whimsical. It has, it, has a, it has more depth to them. They abandoned the, the Constellation project anyway, but they had intentions of going to Orion at one point, NASA. They went for Cassini instead. They went to Saturn, but who'd rule it out? Maybe, maybe, they, maybe that's something that is further down the road, but it's not, you know, in terms of light years, I know it might sound ridiculous, but Sirius and, um, and the Orion constellation are not that far away. They are a very, very long way, but they're not that far away. So, yeah, fascinating. It's incredible to see like where we are now then. So we're looking at this kind of transhumanist agenda just rolling out now, and it seems to just be a repeat of this kind of uh, these occult principles. So someone who's been doing this for, for as long as you have, yeah. what do you see is going on with this kind of transhumanist agenda? Um, we know the Vatican are very much behind this sort of thing. We have Elon Musk, obviously, as a stooge, firing uh, another lot of uh, satellites into the sky. Is that blocking yeah. our connection to this, this source? Is it What is going on here for someone who's been doing this so long? What is your kind of take on what they're trying to achieve? Okay. Well, let me just go back to Orion. I'll tell you what, there is a connection with sure. that. It's absolutely crucial. I wrote in, in the book, there's a chapter called Ancient Future Gods. And it's called that for a reason, because I kept stumbling across in the myths. And I was looking, I was looking at the subject in general, some stumbling across this reference to ancient robots. And um, it's not a new, I mean, it's a new phenomenon in terms of how we understand robots. But if you go back into Greek myth, um, you've got the race of giants that were born in full armor, like Talos, Aristeos. These were, Aristeos were, was transformed into a, um, into Gaia, into a dung beetle, uh, to, to, say, to be saved from the Olympians in the myths, which were the new age of gods as such. So the wars, the star wars in the heavens involved in many ways um, robots, artificial intelligence of some kind. Hephaestus, 
who was the um, who was Vulcan in Roman mythology, a space that's the brother of Prometheus, the big light bearer, the one, the Illuminati symbol, you know, the Prometheus outside the Rockefeller Center in New mm -hmm. York, is, is a kind of a, um, is connected to this sacred fire knowledge. And in the Greek word, fire relates, in terms of Greek mythology and etymology, fire relates to technology. So when Vulcan was making the armory and the weapons of the gods, including flying discs and little things that like Boo Boo the Owl and all these mechanical things that were almost like clockwork and magic and computerized. And there was some kind of essence to that back in the ancient world. And I feel that, personally, I feel that you can go so far into the future on a time loop that you end up in the ancient world. You end up, you end up in a world which is, which is science fiction because it, that world was in the past as well. It's a circular thing. And it's interesting, um, like Aristeus, for example, was turned into a dung beetle. And if you picture a dung beetle in your head and you think about the blackness of it, you know, the black beetle, and you think about the Darth Vader, the transhumanist looking Darth Vader character, you know, people like Lucas and these myth, these filmmakers have all been inspired by this kind of understanding of ancient future gods, Star Wars, trans, transhumanism, you know, the race of gods in full armor, um, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Um, do you remember, do you remember the um, Westworld? Yes, the yeah, 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 we watched it. Clearly, I mean, clearly the uh, Solomon's Temple being rebuilt in, to me, totally. I mean, they used his son's name, did they not, for the machine? Yeah, they, they did. I mean, I, I only saw the, sadly, I only saw the first, first series with the Anthony Hopkins figure. Mm. It was clearly the Demiurge, kind of an architectural figure. And, you know, the whole idea of the Redeemer and the woman being the kind of, the Luciferian Prometheus-like figure, Sophia-like figure, that, that ends that reality and another one starts. And um, Westworld was brilliant for that. I'm trying to think of other, there was others as well. There was a movie called Alita. Do you remember the uh, Battle Angel about three or four years ago? Because in the book, I, the last two or three chapters towards the end, it's kind of, it's subtitle is it's in all in the movies and it, it is all in the movies. Sure. I mean, and it is and it is all in modern day military industrial as well. You know, complex. Um, that's why the American. That's why the DARPA Pentagon named their exoskeletons um, armor Talos because it was based on all of that. Um, and then, yeah, even the shard in London. You know that shard thing. Mm -hmm. That's so symbolic. That all relates to this kind of um, imagery of the of the giants, the Aristeos, the dung beetle, the Electra, all of that stuff. Um, so I, I was more interested in the robot side of things and AI, but that feeds into transhumanism. It's the same thing. Um, do you remember Samsung? They they did a, a series of commercials not that year, I mean, about a year or so ago for the new Galaxy Samsung. And it had this kind of ancient warrior who was doing the poses of Orion with the with the bow and the all that stuff was all about a technological future that came from the ancient world. That's what they want to do. They want to they, they're wanting to rebuild the age of Orion with a with a kind of galactic republic. I call it a cyber grid empire in the book. Other people call it. I've been a bit more creative with it, but people have called it the Internet of Things. You know, all that stuff feeds into it. But it's definitely influenced by 
a darker aspect of, um, I would say, what we would understand as non-human. It's definitely influenced by that, in you know, in, more than we realise. Yeah, and you we, see my we, illustrations, Richard. They cover well, yeah. it, you know. Before before we we climb, we've only got a few minutes left. I mean, it's fascinating. Oh, yes. all night. But what? So people are going to ask the from that the, the the picture behind you that's framed. Obviously, it's David in the middle there. Can you talk oh, the portrait? Yeah, can you talk us through that. Well, that that's that's about ten years old. Sure. Um, that's the original. Um, there's a, 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 it's kind of I did a couple of limited canvas prints. It's based on. It's based on my trip to Peru with David and Linda and a few other people. And we were in that beautiful, you know, trip that we that we went on and we witnessed a whole range of things, not least uh, the appearance of what was obviously an archon as it burst through the cloud. 30 people saw it, there's photographic evidence of it. David has put it in his books many times and I've talked about it because it blew me away when I saw it. And, and that painting is called The Teacher. I call it The Teacher at the Gate of the Gods because below him is the is the uh, Amaru, you know, the, the Devil's Gate. And um, and then above is David as a kind of a, almost a kind of a, 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 a celestial presence, you know, with his lion-like background on one side and his very human side on the other. I've done loads of portraits over the years, especially of friends, you know, like David and other people that I, anybody that really, I really want to get into their spiritual side, I want to paint them paint their mm. portrait especially this man because he's uh, as far as i'm concerned he's he's the greatest teacher of teachers you know so that's why it's called the teacher and you have a lot of people bring down like david because it, i mean he, he obviously a lot of his stuff he, he mixes in gnosticism as you talked about watika quite a lot but i think a lot of people forget that he's been doing this and people like yourself have been doing this for 30 years so some of the stuff that 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 you would you kind of learn new stuff along the way and you will you will change your viewpoints and you will change things you, you might have believed in 30 years ago and they or, or amalgamate them into different things. I don't think people are allow, uh, allow people to do any proper research in the sense of being able to try things out and, and test new things. And you know what I mean? Learn. The whole point of the process yeah. is that yeah. if you believe what you believe 30 years ago, then you've kind of wasted 30 years of your life. And like, do you know what I mean? You're supposed to change. Yeah, do, yeah. But then we all get all this kind of, you're a shield, this person's a shield, and it just, it drives you, no one's given anyone the space to play, you know what I mean, and, and, yeah, and the, try things the ones out. That are, the ones that are pointing fingers all the time and talking about shields, they're, they're holding on to belief systems, just like anybody else's, because exactly. if, it's not, if it's not fitting within their paradigm or a belief system, then they're obviously, that you know, whoever it is they're targeting or thinking about is a shield. I would, what I would say to that is, you know, as you grow, as you grow, as you grow and evolve and you gain more knowledge, of course, things change. What we were what I was calling um, what we call the understanding of Watiko, which is not a new thing. I mean, it's been around for years, but or even the Archon, for example, I was calling predi the predator consciousness myself about 15 years ago. I didn't know any other way of describing it until I started looking at 15, 16 years ago, looking at other things. Um, and then I found, then you find other descriptions and other language. That, that's why etymology is interesting. I'm not an expert, but those that are etymologists can draw parallels between use of words to, to show that all these things are linked anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't suffer fools. I'm as nice as pie. But I don't tend to suffer fools, and I tend to kind of um, just 
I'd rather leave people to their own, you know, leave them to get on with their own stuff because it's not it, when I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm I couldn't care less what people think of me. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, sure. So I've got no interest at all. Well, no, and it, and you get to a certain age when it's just think, what what is the point? But also, what keeps you going then? We've, before we wrap this up, what keeps you going doing this research? Is it kind of like a childlike wonder of trying to trying to just find find out different things? It, it, you kind of also got a wanderer kind of thing about yourself when I watch your videos. What keeps you going and researching this stuff? being fascinated by the world and um, because like the gnostic thing can sometimes feel like if you think this is a hacked version of the world it can yeah. get quite down but you don't yeah. have that kind of viewpoint it's almost it's the other way around it's like this is a wonderful weird place to live in yeah well, what keeps me going is knowing simply this that i am not from here i'm not from here like a lot of people without sounding crazy i mean it is but it's not crazy i'm not from here you know, you're either born of spirit or you're obsessed with the material world. And I've always been interested in spirit. So knowing that and knowing what other wonders you can discover on that journey, like a wanderer, like the fool in the tarot, you know, the, the first card or the last card of the tarot, the fool is a, is a major archetype for this kind of um, understanding of spirit. Fully enough, the fool and the dog, you know, that's almost, that is Orion and Sirius, but another subject but it's kind of that understanding of of knowing there's always knowing there's always more to know i've said that for years and years i used to say that back in the 90s there's always going to be more to know to a point where you don't know it all you just become so absorbed in that knowingness that that oneness that that self self-knowledge you know where you where you I, i'm interested in everything that is i mean simply simple terms i'm interested in everything that is heavenly everything that is divine anything that will take me further down that road to me connecting with something that i, I already understand in my heart but uh, maybe an image that comes up or some research here will give me more nuggets of gold you know so i don't have to worry about um what's at the end of the rainbow symbolically. I, yeah. you, you, you're finding things that are around you all the time. There's always something to, to, to focus on. Um, Is it like enough, I mean, Gretel, like you're trying to find your way back home and these are little... Yeah, you're kind of trying to, you're trying to uh, in a, in a, from a spiritual point of view, but once you stop and you realise that you never really left that place, it's always been a distraction keeping you from... from going there or being there then that's when that's when great art is made actually that's when you sit down and you channel a really fantastic piece of art when you really go into that kind of space i mean all, all artists need a muse of some kind doesn't matter what it is but really the muse is secondary to that inner working that inner connection to a divine source if you want to call it some artists don't have that connection some artists uh uh, you know, some artists are, are members of secret societies. We've not talked about that. I've, you know, I've seen all that over the years. There's been, the, you know, there's a major Masonic connection to the world of fine art. Always has been, always will be. But I've never really been involved in it. I've kept myself as interested or at least interested in that as possibly as I can. Um, so it's just about, for me, it was just about, as we said at the beginning, reconnecting with that childlike imagination. It might just be that, that I'm, we're all, you know, it's funny the other day, Richard, before I go, just one thing, I woke up the other morning, I'm, I moved back to my childhood area and I woke up 
and, and I, I was still in the garden and I could sense I had this vibration in the air that reminded me of when I was about seven years old and I was at school. And I thought to myself, why, why am I feeling that? And then, then it dawned on me, it, there is no separation in time. I, I could go back to that state of childlike essence at any time, but because I'd taken time to, to kind of connect with, with the world at that point and switch off from everything, it was, it was a lot stronger for me. And I think that's what we do as creatives or anybody is that we have to sometimes just, we have to become still enough, you know, to feel that moment and then something will come through. That little golden nugget will appear, you know, a bit of insight or information and we go, ah, oh yeah. You know, and then you get on with your day. But we've got to make time for that. I, I'm always doing that as much as I can. I mean, as you know, we all struggle with stuff, but I'm always trying to find that connection. Yeah. And lately, it's been, you know, it's been tough with all the shit that's been thrown at us. But but you've got to, you've got to keep at it. That's you don't give in. You've got to keep going with it. And that's what I, I've tried to do. You know. Well, that's what I, I say I with this just, news. This new stuff just keeps you in the material world and in the dense, dense darkness of it all down here. So, Neil, this has been great. We'll do it again because I want to talk about more of this occult art as well. And actually, this has been really good to get the background and understanding of where you kind of come from, what your kind of your your feeling of the world is, and your kind of understanding of what, why we're here and what we're doing here. Which yeah. is really what I'm interested in, and I think what we're all interested in is having these conversations about what. What are we doing here? Where are we going? How did we get here? And let's all just try and enjoy it and, and share these ideas. So it's been great. And I really want to talk about the Freemasonic part of the the, uh, the art, but we can do oh, it well, yeah. in a month's time. So we'll connect okay. to another one. But where can people find your work and, and um, find out more about you before you go? Just go to neilhay.com. That's the main website. And on there, there'll be links to other things. Perfect. Well, I'll put all the links below. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Please leave some comments below on iconic.com. This will go up on BitChute and YouTube, and also it will be as a Spotify and Apple podcast. So, please do share this and check out Neil's work as well. And this this stuff again is 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 great. Kind of like I hope you feel kind of more upbeat when you when you go because it really has a feeling of like there's more out here and there's more to life and it's it's an adventure and it really should feel like that still hopefully even when you're in your 80s because because this is a mad 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 mental world and this um, yeah. fascinates me fascinates me and and if you can get away from the news and you can get away from the darkness and the war it's still a weird fascinating place and it always has been and uh, and yeah we don't know what we're doing here at all i certainly have no idea but it's wonderful to spend an hour with you Neil. thank you Richard. it's been lovely thanks a lot thanks for having me on it's brilliant yeah, see you soon yeah okay all is important to us. Hello and welcome to tonight's show. You've arrived at your destination. Connecting.